Hello and welcome to the Hacked Off Podcast. In today's episode, I wanted to talk a little bit about something that I brought up in the last episode, but uh, didn't dwell on it. It was quite a strong statement that I made. Um, In a recent episode, we explored some of the details of firewalls, and I talked about how firewalls are often deployed at the perimeter, but that from the point of view of a penetration tester, it's rare to see network segmentation done well. And then we dived into talking about segmentation and all of those uh, nuances. The other thing that I said, and then never referenced again, was the fact that um, firewall vulnerabilities are rare. And saying that firewall vulnerabilities are rare is is quite a strong statement. So I figured we'd uh, revisit that, take a look a little bit about what do I mean by firewall vulnerabilities and what do I mean by rare. Because of course I'm not saying that firewall vendors write perfect software without making mistakes, without taking a Friday afternoon or introducing an unexpected security vulnerability. I'm of course speaking of something quite specific. I was talking about perimeter breaking firewall vulnerabilities. So a vulnerability that would allow an internet-based attacker to uh, pivot through a firewall by compromising it, perhaps through something like a remote code execution vulnerability, and then the uh, threat actor being able to then attack internal network devices. And there's a few different reasons why this kind of uh, issue in the real world is rare. It's because of network architecture and the way that these networks are put together. And of course, it's uh, due to things like how firewall management works. So you wouldn't typically have the uh, management interface internet facing. So there's uh, some network restriction there that would mean even if a firewall had a vulnerability, it wouldn't necessarily be exploitable from the internet. So it, it has the same overall effect. And of course, rare is an important term because rare doesn't mean it never happens. So I figured what we do in this episode was we would take a step back. We would talk a little bit about some of the vulnerabilities that have been discovered, some of the vulnerabilities that have been used against organizations to perimeter break through a firewall. We'll talk a little bit about those network architecture design decisions that you can make to minimize the likelihood that one of these vulnerabilities would be impactful. And we could talk about uh, just some best practice around firewall placement, network design, those kinds of things. And best practice, whilst ideal, sometimes isn't well adopted just because budget constraints, time constraints, those kinds of things. But let's start at the beginning. Of course, there have been vulnerabilities within firewalls and... um, here, the the number of vulnerabilities, I guess, is uh, dependent upon things like the attack surface. So it, so it does matter um, what what kind of firewall you're using and what way you're using that firewall, how the network is laid out, that kind of thing. So, so for example, just to, to cover those things, some organizations might implement a DMZ as a leg off a single firewall. So you have one firewall interface pointing towards the internal corporate network and another firewall interface, which is... Uh, off to a to a DMZ. Now that would be distinct from having a DMZ implemented using two firewalls. So an externally facing firewall and then an internal firewall that allows for that segmentation between internal corporate network and DMZ. The two firewall model here, of course, having less risk because it would be a separate device to compromise. Presuming it was a separate device and not just another instance of the same uh, model. Sometimes this idea can lead people to talking about things like 
having two firewalls or having back-to-back firewalls of different versions or different vendors to uh, mitigate the, the likelihood that a vulnerability in one would allow a perimeter break. The idea being that back-to-back firewalls, uh, you know, if a threat actor gets code execution on one device, they're unlikely to then have a code execution vulnerability on the second device. Not necessarily recommending back-to-back firewalls, but this is the kind of thing that we're talking about in this context where people are trying to reduce the risk of the single point of failure of whatever firewall device is compromised. But let's start at the beginning. Let's look at some example vulnerabilities and, and the lessons learned from those vulnerabilities and then build up to what are the alternatives other than just putting back-to-back firewalls and, and how can architecture play into this kind of thing. So we have seen vulnerabilities in firewalls before. A, a good go-to example would be something like benign CERN. So benign CERN, um, I guess let's take a step back from that just in case you're not immediately familiar with the name benign CERN. This is a vulnerability that came from an exploit pack that was leaked by the shadow brokers. So the exploit pack uh, originated with Equation Group. Equation Group are one of those APTs. If you're not familiar with them specifically, the Equation Group are uh, believed to be the Tailored Access Operations Group from within the United States National Security Agency. So uh, a really, really capable um, threat actor, a really, really capable group from a exploitation point of view. Now, ironically, their exploitation pack was leaked. It was compromised in some way. And as part of that leak by the shadow brokers, this vulnerability benign certain was uh, discovered. So they had a exploit for it, or I guess arguably you could say benign certain is the name of the exploit rather than the name of the vulnerability. Some people might prefer to refer to the vulnerability by its CVE ID. So it's CVE 2016-6415. That's cool, whatever. For simplicity's sake, I'm just going to call it benign certain because it's a kind of cool name for an exploit. So the benign certain vulnerability is a vulnerability within Cisco PICS. Now, this is an older vulnerability having been released in 2016, but even then, when it was released, picks were end of life. So it's an old product. But it's still a good example worth looking at because at the time, it was a previously unknown vulnerability. The exploit being leaked is what made this vulnerability public knowledge. What the vulnerability was, within Cisco picks, there was a vulnerability within the uh, IPsec VPN that allowed a threat actor to leak memory. So you could disclose memory content. Using that, you could disclose private keys for the VPN and then compromise the VPN. So a really powerful vulnerability, even though it's old, even though it's in an end-of-life product. A good example of effectively a worst-case scenario, it's like you have this perimeter device, like a firewall or a VPN or something like that, or in this case, a PIX, which is a firewall that has a VPN enabled. And you can compromise it, allowing a threat actor to gain internal network access. It's a cool vulnerability. It, for the sake of completeness, it wasn't the only vulnerability within that pack. There was a couple of others for Cisco. So things like um, Epic Banana and Extra Bacon uh, came out of the, the same pack. Again, vulnerabilities with cool names. Um, and Cisco weren't the only organization impacted by that. There was vulnerabilities for Cisco, but also Juniper, WatchGuard, and others. So... This kind of vulnerability is the kind of thing that I'm talking about when I say firewall vulnerabilities are at. It isn't the case that, you know, firewalls are just perfect software. But this kind of vulnerability where an internet-based threat actor can compromise the firewall and then can gain internal network access. And whilst it's rare, how do we deal with this kind of thing as an organization? Now, I mentioned um, some people might recommend a 
back-to-back firewalling, that kind of thing, to prevent this type of exploitation. But what else can we do other than just uh, putting firewalls back-to-back or doubling our security budget because we need to buy two of every security device? Well, let's break it down to uh, fundamentals first, right? One of the things that we often see, especially when it comes to things like firewall configuration reviews, is organizations missing out, forgetting, or messing up the the fundamentals, the, the basics, if you prefer. So we'll do firewall configuration reviews, and we often get customers who will um, engage with Sakama to take a look at their access control list, the way that they've got things set up, to make sure that they've not uh, accidentally introduced a firewall ro- rule that causes uh, more risk than they expect it to. They've not accidentally made a small number of changes over time to you know, reduce this security that their firewall's um, allowing. They haven't got overly permissive rules like any any's and that kind of thing. And very often when we look at those, uh, those systems, we look at those configurations, either by looking at the config file or logging into the device itself, we find out that the device is just missing security updates. Because a lot of organizations put an awful lot of effort into making sure their firewall config's good, making sure their Windows server state is up to date. But of course, like all devices on the network get security updates, firewalls get security updates as well. Um, Now, hopefully everybody listening to this thinks that's an obvious thing. And of course, saying it like that, it, it is an obvious thing. You know, software systems get updates. But how quickly can your organization identify that a new version of the firewall software is available and then get a patch installed? Um, can you can you test that patch before you install it to make sure it's not going to cause any problems? Those kinds of things. Very often organizations have a method of scanning their um, Windows server state, so using WSUS or something like that to see which devices are patched, which devices have patches pending, but don't necessarily consider all of their devices and firewalls could be one. So we might be looking at a firewall configuration to see if some silly mistake has been made with access control lists and actually the thing's just out of date. So that's patching and, you know, it shouldn't surprise people that vulnerabilities exist. And when I say firewall vulnerabilities are rare, I mean internet-born remote code execution vulnerabilities, that kind of thing that allow for a perimeter break. And there are other vulnerabilities, but not every vulnerability is born equally. And some organizations might care more about a perimeter break than they do, for example, about a denial of service attack in the firewall, that kind of thing. It depends, you know, that's that's threat modeling and risk management, right? What impacts your organization very severely wouldn't necessarily impact my organization. Some organizations would consider confidentiality more important than availability. We've had these conversations on this podcast before. But one thing that I wanted to leave leave the uh, episode with isn't just the fact that you should be aware that vulnerabilities and firewalls can exist and you should be looking at making sure the process for discovering there's a new version of your firewall operating system available and getting that installed is as quick as possible, especially if it's a critical vulnerability, like a benign certain type issue. And the second thing is, how do you protect the firewall interfaces? So I said right at the beginning that uh, it would be incredibly rare, it's almost unseen for the management interface of a firewall to be internet facing. However, it's really not uncommon for the management interface of the firewall to just be internally facing. So if a threat actor was a member of staff, you know, a uh, malicious member of staff or a disgruntled member of staff, 
or if the threat actor was able to gain internal network access through any of the many ways that we've discussed that previously, be it physical access tests, breaking into buildings, just being a guest or a visitor in a building, a successful phishing attack, something like that. Once the uh, threat actor or the penetration tester or your red teamer is on the internal network, very often they can just reach firewall interfaces. So how should you look to prevent that kind of thing? Some people might uh, jump at that and say, oh, we use access control lists to control which devices can connect to the firewall's internal interface. So you could do something like restricting that to just the IP address range in use for the IT team, that kind of thing. Um, But there's possibly a step you can go further than that. So looking at having a management VLAN, which is segmented from the internal network, and I don't just mean a VLAN where anti-VLAN routing is enabled, but effectively separate interfaces on the network where you have to connect to the management VLAN so that you can get to those firewall interfaces. If you work for one of the few companies that has that implemented, you might be laughing at this thinking, that sounds like a really basic step. But in my experience doing many, many uh, amounts of pen tests, it's pretty rare to see somebody actually implement a data plane, a management plane, and voice plane as separate things. So VLANs can help, but having inter-VLAN routing enabled or just being able to move between VLANs isn't going to help. A VLAN isn't a security boundary. So you actually need to implement that segmentation. If you just restrict by uh, IP address, that kind of thing, we could possibly bypass that using IP address spoofing for things like uh, UDP traffic. So if we're targeting things like SNMP, some of the firewall vulnerabilities have been born out of SNMP, so that's not uh, particularly uh, stretching the uh, the possibilities. Um, or alternatively, if you're restricting just by IPs, you might just be making the pen test to have an additional hop where they have to compromise a certain device or, or gain access to a certain IP range before they can target the firewall. The more difficult you can make it for a threat actor to get to the management interface, the more secure it will be. Because whilst you're not restricting the overall attack surface, you're making it difficult to get to. So that's something to consider. So we talked previously about firewall configuration and making sure that the rule the rule base is as tight as possible. We talked about vulnerabilities in the, in the beginning of this uh, podcast. But one more thing to throw on top of there is how do you make it harder for a threat actor to get to that management interface? And it isn't just a case of, you know, making sure it's only internally facing. You can do more. So yeah, that's my uh, rants about firewalls over for this week. Thank you for listening, and I will see you in the next podcast.